Hey everyone, it's Nate, and this is Two Friends Talking About Things. Now this episode starts in kind of a weird place. Jason and I had been talking for about an hour and a half about success, uh, what our definition is, what success means to us, and decisions that uh, we've made as we've both grown up and have had our share of successes and failures, both personal and professional. Alas, after listening to the recording, we made the decision to cut most of that out and you'll hear why in a second. For now, I will say three things. First, we really appreciate you listening. We know you have a lot of ways to spend your time, and we're very honored that you're choosing to listen to us meander through half-finished thoughts on this podcast, so thank you. Second thing, um, because we cut the first part of our conversation out, there are a few times uh, where you may become slightly confused as to what the hell we're talking about, since we do end up referencing earlier parts of the conversation. But not to worry, you can check out the show notes on our website, which is tooftat, that's the number two, F-T-A-T dot com. We put the show notes up there and we elaborate on some of the points and try to clear up any confusion. And finally, for those of you who really want to hear the first part of our conversation, we did put the full audio up online as well, and we put a link to that on our website. So yeah, enough preamble. Thanks for being here, and here's Jason to, to kick us off. We might have to cut this. I don't know, because I don't know if it's going to be... <laughs> I, well, because here's my concern. I, I'm worried that we're going to talk about this in the interest of, like like talking about the the intrinsic motivation that led us to something and that's going to be the goal but what's going to come out is a lot of like self like just masturbation so what i want to talk about is is like you and i are both successful people like by like by our own our own definition of success and presumably by external definitions of success like like i consider myself to be successful my mom considers me success to me to be successful and i'm pretty sure that that most people who who know me would would call me successful to a certain degree right um and i i feel like you're in the same boat um but what i what my I'm, mom doesn't think i'm successful no. i'm just i'm just kidding dude. so <laughs> the uh so the, but the, what I wanted to get at was like, I don't, I've never felt like I'm like special. I don't feel like I have any secret, um, secret access to secret information. Um, and I, I don't, I don't think that you feel this, that same way either. And, and really like when I was in high school, I was so socially awkward that I actually needed your help to get to the point where I could like talk to other human beings in a way that wasn't abrasive and awkward. And, you know, on the, the opposite end of the spectrum, you were, you were so, uh, careful. You, <laughs> you struggled, you struggled so much in high school that you, you didn't, you wouldn't have graduated if you hadn't been able to like socially engineer your way into a passing grade in one of your classes. Very so true. how is it that someone socially retarded like me? And someone who failed remedial math four times in a row. How did the two of us end up with successful businesses? And it, like specifically speaking, like what what is it that went from like getting out of high school, where both of us got out of high school with our varying degrees of of like 
you know, trouble and setbacks and, and issues that we had to work through. Um, what choices did we make that were different from the other kids in our school? And, and like, I, we have to just preclude some of the shit that's, that's just a given, like we're both white men. So obviously we had some legs up and we both had pretty good situations. Like we were, we were sitting pretty comfortably in the middle class, uh, at the outset and we were both working, um, in like shitty menial jobs. Like I was a dishwasher or a pizza cook and you were, I think working as a, a bus boy in, in retail. Um, and like what, so, so what choices did we make that led us to where we are? And, and like, what is it that allowed us to, to get to the point that we're in successful businesses and, and in these positions where we feel successful internally and externally um, versus some people that we went to school with who were honestly like they did better on tests. They were more socially, uh, they were more socially adept. They had better connections. Like what, what happened? And, and like, I don't want to talk shit about anybody. So I don't want to talk about what went wrong for anybody else. I'm just, I'm specifically interested in what did, like, what choices did you make that led you to where you are now? I think maybe an unspoken one is I continued to be friends with you. Y yeah. That, okay. So, so do you I'm think that like I'm, our, I'm our friendship? Like, Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say I'm dead serious. I feel like, yeah, I feel like our friendship was maybe not the key, but a key to, mm. to you and I, or at least to me doing well afterward, because I I, I was able to have conversations like this at like 16 and mm -hmm. 18 and 22. And I, I don't know. I felt like we always did a good job of, of helping each other out. Like there were some times where like, I mean, you were work. I, I can't speak for you, but uh, you were like moved down to Colorado and like right. you're going to school for graphic design or something. I don't even know what you're going to school for. My, and my one semester. Yeah. And like just partying and like you were in this like shitty apartment and mm. you know what I mean? Like, so I, I'm sure you would have pulled yourself out of it and decided to do something different. But I remember like you called your mom when I was in the apartment and you're like, I think I'm going to come home because I don't feel like I'm doing anything right now. And mm. I don't know if you would have done that that quickly or if at all, if you and I wouldn't have been so close and we wouldn't have had like a frank appraisal of each other's situations where I'm like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, I mean, that's true. Like that was a, that was a particularly rough time for me because it, it felt like I, um, like I'd lost all the things that were my motivation in high school. Cause in, in high school I had my, my first band, which was always like a target to shoot for. Can I get people to come to the show? Will anybody listen to our band? And like, we were a terrible band. Um, so it was a, it was a, it was a very uphill struggle getting people to like this band. So it was really, it was really challenging to me. And that was really fun. Um, and so when I went to school, like I, I had this advanced disillusionment when I realized that the school I'd gone to was, it, they advertised that they were staffed by industry professionals. And I didn't realize at the time because I'd never had any real world experience that what a technical, like a vocational college is capable of paying a professor 
is maybe a third to 10% of what a competent industry professional can actually make. So these industry professionals were very heavily air quoted because they were basically people who wanted to work in their field, but they weren't good enough. So they ended up working, you know, that whole, that, that joke, like those who can't do teach. Um, and, and now that's not entirely fair because I did have a couple good teachers, but for the most part, it just, it didn't feel like I was learning anything. And so I started to get really disillusioned about job prospects and, and I was working in the most soul sucking job I've ever had, which was as tech support for a major satellite TV company. And that, oh my God, that is like looking into the maw of hell. The, the level of fury that people have around their television, um, the first time that anybody like morally shook me to my core was this woman who called in and I can still remember almost the whole conversation verbatim. She had called me because her TV had gone out because the, you know, satellite TV goes out because if there's shitty weather or whatever. And she had organized a dinner party to watch one of the reality TV shows like desperate, you know, not desperate housewives, but uh, like the real housewives of New Jersey, one of those type of those bad shows. And the TV went out and it was like 30 minutes before everybody was supposed to show up and watch this reality show together. And this was a critical event in this woman's life. Like this was more important to her than I think anything has ever been to me. And when I told her that there was nothing I could do to get her TV back on, she screamed at me with so much hate in her voice that it actually like shook me. Like it affected me on a very deep level to where I had to like take a few minutes and, and sit and think because I'd never been that hated before in my entire life. And um, so that type of thing happened on a fairly regular basis. So that on top of the disillusionment around school, on top of the loss of my one big target, which was being in a band, put me in a pretty uh, dark place. Yeah. And yeah, having you, having you come and, and basically look around and go, dude, are you serious about this? Uh, <laughs> that was a good, that was a good wake up call. And, and it was, um, it was definitely something that was very, um, helpful in, yeah. in so, pulling my shit back on track. Well, all right, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. Cause I, I, I feel like I was just speaking out of my ass, right? Things. So I wasn't actually sure if I could like say our, our friendship was like one of the things that we've done to, to be quote unquote successful by our, by our own terms. But well, I, feel like I, it I is. think, I think it's unfair to say our friendship because that makes it sound exclusive. I, I don't think that it's our friendship. I think that it's the, the openness of like having those really frank conversations Absolutely. because anybody well, I, I can't say that. Anybody that I was close to in any way, like it could have been uh, my, you know, it could have been my parents. It could have been probably anybody I'd spent more than 25 minutes with in high school could have come up to me and said a similar thing. And if it had been a, an honest conversation without judgment, the way that you and I had that conversation, I would have most likely come to the, the same realization. So I think our our friendship gave us direct access to that type of conversation. Um, mm -hmm. So I th yeah, I think I would rephrase. And instead of saying our our friendship, I would say the the really uh, the the deep and and um, frank conversations that that kind of dove into who we are and why. 
mm-hmm. uh, is is has been a big one. So uh, yeah. Um, okay. So another one. That- <laughs> <laughs> Taking your answer, completely changing it, and giving it back to you. Uh, moving on. <laughs> yeah. I would expect nothing less. Um, another thing is, like, I think you were talking about like uh, what things that we did uh, that were different than other people. Um, mm-hmm. The only thing that I could really think of, and this may be linked to like my impulsivity, and uh, I've I've gotten way better at self control and controlling it now, but. I took a lot of risks that other people saw as risks that I didn't. Um, very, very clearly, I have one in mind. I went and took out a bank loan uh, for like $1,200. Like you can take out a bank loan for $1,200 to, for me to buy an uh, airfare and a hotel in Washington, D.C. to go to a fitness conference. And I did that when I was like, I, I, I was 19 or 20. I know I wasn't 21 because I remember sneaking into the bars in Washington, D.C. Um, and that was so that was one thing that I did is I, I, I felt like I would take more risks with I, I, I wasn't afraid of being told no. So I took out this loan, went to this fitness conference. And then just because I'm a sociable guy, I met people, connected with them. Uh, I was, I was just ambitious and just annoying enough to get on their radar, but not enough to piss them off, uh, to where they didn't want to talk to me anymore. And those became my first couple of mentors. Like that's where I met Alan Cosgrove. I think, I I don't remember if that's where I met him, but I'm pretty sure it is. Well, yeah, I, I I think I remember you telling me the story about, uh, Alan Cosgrove, um, like humiliating you in front of the whole, or not humiliating, but like touting you out in front of the whole bar because you like turned down some girl and had no idea that she was hitting on you. Wasn't oh, that, that Alan Cosgrove. Yeah. That was a different conference. That was a couple of years oh, later. No. Sorry. Um, let me, <laughs> yeah, that, that's a different story. We won't get into that right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Really quickly. The short story. The short version of, <laughs> no, the short version of that is I was out and yeah, there were like, cute girls there and they were like trying to hang out with me, but I had committed to going and running sprints in the morning, uh, with, with John Berardi and Craig Weller and a couple other good friends. <laughs> and I was like really wanting to go run sprints cause I wanted to impress people and I wanted to hang out with them. And, uh, so I was going to go to bed early. And at, at one point Alan pulled me aside and he said, you know, those girls right there, they, they want to hang out with you. And I said, yes. He said, uh, you're going to go run sprints in the morning, right? I said, yes. He said, do you ever run sprints? I said, no. He said, okay, so let me get this straight. You never run sprints, but you're going to go to bed early because you think that will help. <laughs> what I think you should do is stay out later and hang out with those girls because here's the truth. You're going to throw up when you run sprints anyway. <laughs> so you might as well have a good time tonight instead of going and getting nine hours of sleep. Um, so anyway, after all that, I thanked him. I laughed. I thought it was funny. I went to bed early. I got up the next morning. I ran sprints, and then I puked. <laughs> so he was totally right. <laughs> anyway, uh, one of the one of the many uh, deep insights from Alan Cosgrove along the, the course of your career. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> another thing that I did is I, I emailed. Uh, Lou Schuler, who is the former fitness director of Men's Health Magazine at the time, or or he, uh, 
you know, he was the former fitness director, so he wasn't the fitness director anymore. Um, but he had written a couple of books. Uh, mm-hmm. and all the, he wrote all the new rules of lifting books. Yeah, the new rules of lifting. And so anyway, I, I, I've never met him before, and I emailed him because I found his website and his email address, and I essentially told him that I wanted his job. And I did it in a nice way, but I was like, hey, I think what you're doing is amazing. I love your books. Um, I'm a young trainer. I, I don't know what I'm doing. Do you like have any specific advice for me? And he wrote back, which was amazing to me. Mm. And people thought I was stupid for writing him. They're like, why are you emailing a dude you've never met and asking for advice? And for whatever reason, that was just something I was comfortable doing was putting myself out there. And like I said, I was, I was just ambitious and just annoying enough to get on people's radar. And Lou ended up becoming my, my uncredited co-author on my book built for show. Like he, mm-hmm. he's the one that pushed the whole thing forward. We used his agent, uh, his publishing house, um, or the, the, the people, the publisher that worked with him for his other books. So he was like a big influence on me. So I guess the thing that I did differently is I was just okay taking risks, um, and trying to meet lots of people uh, and try not to be too annoying. Yeah. Well, you know, there was actually a, there was an article that I, I forget what it was called, but, um, Marissa showed it to me and it was about entrepreneurs and risks. And like the, the article I think was wrong because the article was implying that entrepreneurs aren't taking risks. They're finding sure things. And like, I I disagree with that because I don't think that like anybody who has a sure thing is going to go for a sure thing. But um, people who are are successful, like successful entrepreneurs, I think they do take a lot of risks, but they never seem, they never feel as risky to somebody who's an entrepreneur as they would to somebody who is looking at the situation from the outside. Like to you, taking out a $1,200 loan to buy a plane ticket in a hotel, um, from the outside looking in, that's incredibly short-sighted and probably stupid. Yeah. Because it's like, oh, here's this guy putting himself in $1,200 of debt so that he can go spend a weekend in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Right? That's that's very silly. But to you as the entrepreneur, you thought to yourself, okay, if I go to this conference, I'm going to meet all of the people who work for this magazine that I want to work for. I'm going to be able to hang out with them get FaceTime with them and actually make a real connection as opposed to just trying to talk to them on the internet. And yep. if that, if I play my cards right, that will put me on a list of people that they'll consider the next time that they need someone to work there. And so it was a risk, but it was a calculated risk. And the, you know, the, the downside was you would have to pay back a $1,200 loan which would end up costing you fourteen or fifteen hundred dollars after the interest. The upside was you might be able to land a job, and you might be able to make industry contacts. And if any of that worked out, even to a small scale, you would make more than twelve hundred dollars in the grand scheme of of what happens. Well, and that um, did work. That did work out too. That's exactly right. What of course, that's how you got your your initial role, which is what like the forum moderator for you. Like, yeah. what was that? You were a moderator. I was a moderator at a forum for for T Nation. Yeah. And so <laughs> really and, quickly, I've, I've noticed how many times like you said uh, earlier, a large satellite TV provider, <laughs> you didn't name any names. And I'm like, I used to work for T Nation. And I'm like wondering if that's a good thing to say. Uh, I can't get sued for defamation or anything, right? Well, I don't think you said anything defaming. Yeah, good. All right. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, no. Anyways, uh, party on. <laughs> but the um, the <laughs> so so you that, you that took this. That was a this, very real, just uh, like oh shit, maybe I've made a mistake. I'm gonna I check with my friend really quickly to make sure that he doesn't think <laughs> I made a mistake. And now everyone listening, do we is have to edit this? to that? Um, yep. No. So so you took this big risk, this uh, this this externally big risk, but internally like very calculated risk. And it, it, maybe it was a little reckless, but like, I mean, who gives a shit, right? Like you, you'll never get a payoff if you don't take any risks. Um, but the risk was calculated and, and I've done kind of similar things. Like I quit a full-time job and I turned down a job that was going to pay me, um, like $30,000 a year for an entry level position in, in software. Um, which was right, it was right down the street from where I was working at Kinko's. And I went through the interview process and, and everything was great. And they were going to bring me on to work on projects. It seemed cool. It was some of the biggest clients that you can get when you're an agency in Montana. Um, so it was going to be a good job. But I did the math in my head and I realized that I had one client and that client was going to pay me like barely $1,000 a month. It was, it was like not that much money. And if that one client was going to pay me that much and I could do it in like a few hours, three days a week, how, how much more than 30 grand a year could I realistically make? Like to, to make that into $3,000 a month, I wouldn't even have to fill up my whole week. So I could make more than that job was offering me. Um, but you know, to, to the outside like to the outside, it might've looked like I took a huge risk because I turned down a job for $30,000 a year and a guaranteed paycheck and benefits and all that stuff to take a single client with no other prospects at the time that I quit where I was making exactly enough money to cover my rent, pay my other outstanding bills and leave maybe like 50 bucks a month for food. Um, <laughs> What but kind to of me, food did you eat? Oh, I ate so much ramen for the first couple of months. But there was, there was really, uh, it was like it, to me, it didn't seem crazy at all. It seemed like the only logical thing to do because when I did the risk, like my own risk analysis, taking a job that had a non-compete clause, like wouldn't let me work for freelance stuff, um, for thirty grand a year, and I asked him what the growth potential was. Like, was this eventually going to be opened up into a job that could pay me fifty thousand dollars a year, eighty thousand dollars a year? They were like, well. Right now, we've the highest it could probably go is $36,000 a year. And I was like, okay, so $3,000 a year is my cap after I've proven my value to the company. That means that I have to stay there long enough to look dependable so that I can start applying for other jobs and hope to move up the chain. My other option is to take the risk on this small job that leaves me a lot of time to hunt for other business and see if I can make thirty grand a year on my own which I did like the ver the very first year I was able to, to make it the equivalent 30 grand. Um, mm. and, and so, you know, it, and it wasn't like a glamorous existence. I, instead of having a regular paycheck, I had a couple months where I'd make five grand and then I'd have a month where I made zero dollars. Um, and I hadn't learned how to manage money yet. So that month that I made zero dollars meant I was like eating other people's food. Uh, hey, Nate, can I come over? What'd you have for dinner last night? Are there leftovers? Sweet. Can I have them? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, there was, but that was a, it was a calculated risk. And, and while it scared the holy shit out of my mom, it to me made more sense than the alternative, which was the theoretically safer 
option. Um, so to, to give a quick rundown then, the, the secrets to our success thus far have been the, the like frank and honest conversations, the, the willingness to take risks, even if they seem really risky that are, are actually relatively calculated. Um, and then one that you touched on for a minute that, that I wanted to get back to was the, the willingness to put ourselves in places where other people are that we need to be in, in contact with. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, your, your first one was a combination. You took a, you took a risk to put yourself in the room with people that you wanted to work with. And that was actually a huge inspiration for me because that became my strategy for client acquisition and for like growing my career. So in the wake of, of your success doing that, I started tagging along with you to fitness conferences because I had started working with a few fitness guys. Uh, you know, your, your success in the fitness industry helped me make a couple uh, inroads with other people. And as my referral network started to grow, most of the people I was working with were also personal trainers. Um, so I started showing up at, at training conferences like uh, Perform Better and things like that where I was able to actually just sit down in conversations with uh, my clients and their friends or my clients and people who looked up to them in the industry. So it started out, I would go tag along with you. And then later, um, you know, I, I started working with John Romanello and Sean Heisen and uh, I got Lou Schuler as a client. And, and so whenever these guys were at the, at these events, I could just show up and be like, Hey, what's up, man? Do you want to go get dinner? And inevitably five people I didn't know would come along and I'd make contacts and then they would find out what I did and they'd figure out that they knew a guy that I'd worked for. And that led to a, you know, like a, a good word of mouth, um, endorsement. And the next thing I knew I had like one or two projects. And so I kept doing that and it kept paying off and it kept paying off. Um, and the same thing in the industry, I would, I started going to, um, software events and they started out small and local and then I started going to bigger ones. Then I volunteered to speak at a local event and that gave me confidence to ask to speak at a national event. And I like through that ended up meeting a lot of really influential people and got myself into some positions where I was able to do really cool things for really cool projects. You know, I, I landed uh, fortune 500 company projects and worked with agencies on really high dollar amount projects. It was, it was awesome. And all of that came from being in a place where I could meet somebody who needed something at the same time that they met me. Um, mm-hmm. so, so making yourself available in person to people who might need you, I think is, uh, to me, that's been the single biggest influence on my success. Um, I think the, like the deep conversations led me to have the confidence and foresight to know that was important. And it, it gave me the confidence to, to take the risks, but actually being in a room, um, with people who might need me, it took the selling away. Like I, I know I've never cold called anybody in my life to say, hello, my name is Jason. I do websites. Do you need one? Um, I've never cold emailed anybody and said, I couldn't help but notice that you have a website and it's not very good. Can I help you make a better one? That's also Um, a horrible email to send. (laughs) Well, it's, it's, it's a stressful thing to do because you're basically calling somebody up and you're implying that there's a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and which is, which is fine if you think that you can offer a solution and then you offer that solution in a very, very easy way. Absolutely. And cold, like cold calling, cold emails, those are tried and true sales techniques. Like lots and lots of freelancers sustain their business on that sort of work. So I know that it works, but to me it was deeply uncomfortable. Like the, just the thought of emailing a stranger and 
in a, a much more tactful way saying your website sucks and you should give me money to fix it. It just like it, something in my, in my heart did not agree with that, that type of selling. And so by, by doing this, this kind of in-person thing, it completely changed the dynamic for me because now I wasn't some stranger telling another stranger that something was wrong. Now I was like a guy in the room and I, and it would come out, Hey, uh, I'm a web designer. And they would go, Oh dude, I need to talk to a web designer. My website sucks. I have this problem. Like, what do you think about this? And I could offer a solution and then they would like hire me. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, it was a game changer for me as somebody who didn't want to sell. Um, what, what else, what, what else have, have we done? Um, that like, if you could offer, I, I don't know, like think about if, if somebody came to you, like I'm about to quit my job, what should I do? Um, first I'd tell them not to quit their job until they found something <laughs> to do. Okay. <laughs> like, All right. Yeah. Like, like, like that, nothing sounds more stressful to me than figuring out how to make money very quickly. Like it, it can be done. Um, and if you really need like a kick in the ass, I guess that's one way to do it. But I would rather, the, <laughs> I would rather them not quit their job before like taking the plunge until like trying to make money on their own. Um, mm. I think there's a really, uh, there's a really smart guy, uh, that did some work with, uh, Tim Ferriss and Ramit Sethi. His name is Charlie Hone. Um, we'll put up a link in the show notes and, uh, I think he has a, a book, uh, it may be a free ebook. It may cost a couple of dollars and it's called recession proof graduate. And it's for people that graduated college. Um, but what I, uh, but it's applicable to anyone. And there's actually a really good piece of advice in there. And it's basically doing free work for people. Like how can you go do free work for people, uh, without expecting anything in return, and that's what Charlie did with Ramit and that's what he did with Tim Ferriss. And of course it led to more paid work and right. he made connections, but it's kind of like the opposite of what you were talking about with the freelance thing. I think sometimes you do need to do free work to show your value. And especially if mm. you do it in a calculated way, it's not just taking on any free project that comes your way so you can quote unquote, get your name out there or anything. It's strategically going after people that you look up to that you think that you've identified at least one to three ways that you can specifically help them and offer value and do it in a way that is easy for them to say yes to and doesn't cost them any amount of money or time or resources. Now they may end up paying you for it, but you don't go in there with the expectation. Instead, you're looking to just build connections with people and to show it's like results in advance. How can you give them results in advance? And it may not lead to a job, but it will lead to experience for you and probably and it, and some good connections. And probably referrals. Exactly. So I, that's a, that's a fantastic book called recession proof graduate. So I would, I'd, if I were like giving someone advice or if I like, if for whatever reason, if like precision nutrition just disappeared and I needed to find, you know, cause I, I know other ways to make money, but like, that's my main, that's my salary right now. It's my main way of right. making an income. If that just suddenly went away, um, I have enough money to live for a while to where I wouldn't have to go get a paycheck right away. So that was key. Just building up a little bit of a savings account, like an emergency mm -hmm. account. And yeah, man, I would look around for people that I look up to that's do that are doing good work in a bunch of different fields. And I would really think long and hard and I would study them and their stuff 
and their work. What could I do to offer them tremendous value? And that's how I would make my new connections. And that's how I would figure out what to do next. Because I wouldn't yeah. even know what that would lead to. But it could be something that I didn't even know was a career option. Yeah, you, well, that's actually something that I think is, um, like, if, if I was going to give that same advice, I would probably point toward the idea of just staying very curious. Um, because one of the best things that ever happened to me was being in a position where I had literally no money. Um, when I was, after I dropped out of college, I came back to Montana and I joined up with um, some of my old bandmates and formed a new band and we started to take it really seriously. So we were touring and stuff, but part of touring is that you got to live in a van for weeks at a time. So I couldn't hold down a job for more than like a week and a week of working as a, uh, like, I don't know, at Wendy's is a, it's not a paycheck. You get like $40. So you get, you know, I'm living on like 40 to $50 a week. So most of what I was doing was completely shoestringed. And, um, because I was too proud to say I couldn't. Um, and I think I owe my dad for that because my dad always, you know, anytime that I try to tell him I couldn't, he'd be like, no, you're too smart to say you can't keep going. Um, whenever we ran up against the wall in the band, I would just say I'd figure it out. And I had no idea what the fuck I was doing, but I learned, like I learned everything from how to change a tire to how to patch a hole in a trailer to how to build a website to how to negotiate with somebody who really didn't want to give you money that owed you money. And like each of those things wasn't something I thought I could do. It was just something that I, I decided I was going to try because fuck it, somebody else can figure it out. Like why not me? And I stayed curious and I, I wanted to figure out a way to make it work. And I just put the effort in to try. And each one of those things taught me a skill. Some of them were skills I never wanted to use again. If I never change a tire in my life, I will be the happiest person that you've met. But other things like learning to negotiate, that's paid me back so many times over that I can't even, I mean, I probably owe half of my, my current net worth to learning how to negotiate with people who didn't want to give you money. You know, it gives you that like stiff upper lip when you're talking about, you know, you owe me this money and they go, well, I can't pay you. Well, fuck you. You're going to pay me. I need a hundred dollars or I can't get to the next city. <laughs> you know what I mean? If we're talking about like, I don't know, it's, 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 it's almost arrogant, right? To like talk about like, what are the, the keys to success and stuff like that? But we're only, I guess I like to speak from experience and not give advice, but um, that's, I think another thing is realizing that success and what you're going to be doing for a living and all that is very fluid. Like yes. you and I could, you and I could be having very different conversations five years. And I hope we are very different conversations about what success is maybe five to 10 years from now. And we may have different career paths, like, or we, you know, yeah. there, there may be something up that we make money in a completely different way or we're still doing the same things that we're doing now. Um, I don't know, but it's like the idea of like, I, I want to end with like one more kind of little story. And it's when I started working at uh, Precision Nutrition and uh, John Berardi and I started having these conversations about home runs or making it. And what happened is there are a lot of people on the outside of the fitness industry. Um, let's just say like young people that 
our personal trainers that are trying to get into magazines and trying to uh, get their name out there and and have like this online training business or whatever. I'll, I'll speak about that because I know it well. Um, what they do is they look at people that are a little bit ahead of them and they go, oh, okay, like it looks like I need to open a gym to be successful. It looks like I need to write a book to be successful. It looks like I need to be in magazines to be successful. Um, but those are all false constructs. Like you don't actually know what that will bring. And I remember being in this position where I, I was the same way where I would say, okay, as soon as I get into men's health magazine, like the largest men's fitness magazine in the world, as soon as I get into men's health, that's when I, I know I'll have made it. That's when I'll be successful. And then it was when I get a book published and it's on Barnes and Noble bookshelves or you can buy it on Amazon. That's when I'll be successful. Or when I get a job uh, and I make six figures a year, that's when I know I'll be successful. Um, and I keep, I, I think human nature is to keep looking for those things that will mean we're successful, uh, but they're always changing. And once you get them, like you think it's going to be a home run, you think you're just going to knock it out of the park and it ends up being a base hit. And I think that's okay. So a book, unless it's like, you know, a couple, unless it's a million dollar book deal, it's not going to change your life. And I would even argue, even if it is a million dollar book deal, I was just going to say that I would even argue that if it is a million dollar book deal, uh, may have negative effects on your life too. So just, yeah, the, the idea is success is fluid. So I think it's yeah. just a matter of defining it for yourself. And then, I don't know being okay with whatever happens after. Yeah. Well, and no, and I, I also think, um, I know, I know that we're trying to wrap this up, but I, I feel like I have to add this because it's, it's been so critical for me, but, uh, it, the, what you were saying is like, once I get a book deal, I'll be successful or once I get into men's health. And I, I think that that's that in and of itself, that type of, of definition of goals is, um, one of the more poisonous things you can do because it, it puts, success or happiness or accomplishment at the end of a path, like it's some kind of, of reward that you get for doing good work. And w that has always been really damaging. Like there's, there's kind of a, I, I don't even know what you would call it. It's like, it's like post-project depression. Like when you, you get something to the finish line and it, it doesn't feel good. Like you get it done and then you just kind of feel like, oh, well, I guess that's it then. And like, even if it goes well, um, I felt that way a little bit when we first launched this podcast. Like I, I don't know what I was expecting. Like, I don't know if I expected to have it run on the front page of CNN and the wall street journal and, and like get, you know, lots of phone calls from Oprah's people and that kind of shit. But like, I knew that that wasn't going to happen. And I don't know if it would have actually changed anything if it had happened. But once the project launched, I had this feeling of like, uh, and it's because I forgot what I always try to tell myself and what I immediately forget every time I tell myself, which is that like the, the goal of a project isn't to launch the project. The goal of a project is to enjoy working on the project. Mm -hmm. Like there will always be projects. And if you finish a project, you're going to come up with a different project. Like you're never done. There's no, there's no finish line that you cross and suddenly somebody comes and hand, hands you a, a plaque that says like, you have accomplished one life. Enjoy. <laughs> Sit down and and relax. You got fifty years left until you die. Have like, some champagne. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, what the fuck would I do if I was done? Like, yeah, okay, great. I I do something. I make a billion dollars, and I'm sitting on my ass. Am I going to be happy? 
And it could be something great. I could, I could make my billion dollars by simultaneously solving gun violence and world hunger. Would I still, would I be happy if I had my billion dollars and there was no more violence and no more hunger in the world? Sure. I would be ecstatic that those problems were solved, but personally, I wouldn't be able to sit indefinitely and never accomplish anything again. So I think that, that, you know, there's this, this fallacy that like, once you reach a point of accomplishment that you will be done or that the journey is over and that you will receive success as a reward. It's always part of the journey. And the most successful person in the world is still looking toward their next thing. It's like that you, you, I have to remember to look at it as like a step on a path that's not going to end until I die. Yeah. Well, and it's always changing too, right? Like what you do for a living now isn't necessarily what you're going to be doing later on. And what is important to you now isn't necessarily what's going to be important to you later on. And so just the idea that it's okay to just move along with it and not try to resist it. Yeah. Well, and that, and that's especially true of our generation. Like I, I found out that we're technically millennials, which at first kind of made me sad, but now I don't care. Um, but like the millennial, the millennial generation is the first one that's, it's like normal for, for millennials to have multiple careers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, there's kind of a, like a negative connotation with it. Like you haven't found your purpose if you're changing careers, but I don't necessarily think that's true. I think that the, the goal with all of this is to to make your purpose to challenge yourself and make sure that you're doing things that are fulfilling in in as many ways as possible. You know, you you said earlier like as many W's as you can control. Um, that's I mean that's the goal. And as soon as you get to the done, and you've like accomplished something, you've lost a few of those W's because now you don't have a what mm-hmm. anymore. So, you know, you need to, you need to find your next, what, what are you working on? What are you, you know, why are you doing it? And, um, and I think that's the, the, I, I don't know, that was a, that was a big thing for me to realize, even if I haven't been able to fully implement it, like, or it, I haven't been able to fully internalize it because I still feel that way. Like when I get to a project and at the end, I'm like, oh, fuck, Dude, I didn't most do what of I it, wanted to do. Most of these are just reminders to ourselves. <laughs> well, yeah, I, 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 like, I swear to God, I need to just like play some of these on repeat so that I'm not, you know, the next time that I start getting into a funk, I can be like, stop it. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyways, I, I feel like we should probably call it there. Um, Agreed. any last words before we wrap it up? I have to take a piss. <laughs> <laughs> You are very, not, very, you're, you're not expecting that. Very this eloquent is, summation. We've, Nick Green. Yeah, um, we've been we've been sitting here for two hours though. No, that's that's very true. All right, do you do you want to take us out this time? Um, take us out. Meaning, uh, you can please go review and leave a comment and a rating on iTunes uh, if you are so inclined. It'll only take like one minute, and it's very very helpful for us because. It helps spread the word and gets more people uh, to know about the podcast, which we appreciate since we're obviously... And it gives us a huge warm fuzzy. Yes, it's really fun going and reading that. I I really appreciate everyone that's left a review so far. And you can also check out our website with the show notes for this episode on Tooftat. That's com. Number two. Number two, sorry. And you can go uh, read all the show notes there. And shout out to my little brother, Austin Green, who has been writing those show notes. 
Yes, he has been doing an awesome job because I couldn't do that on my own. And I wouldn't want to, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I think that's about it. Yeah, I think we're good. Um, all right, man, well, enjoy your trip to the bathroom, I guess. <laughs> I will, very much so. <laughs> all right, take care. Later.